Welcome to the audiobook speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the speakeasy. I've met many audiobook professionals and avid listeners on my journey as an audiobook narrator, and I'm looking forward to introducing them to you. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and enjoy a friendly chat about audiobooks and audiobook production. Joining me tonight in the speakeasy is an audiobook editor and engineer extraordinaire, someone who has had a hand in over 700 audiobook productions, I believe, working with both individual narrators and big players in the audiobook world like Audible Studios. Amanda Rose Smith, thanks for joining me in the audiobook speakeasy tonight. Hi, glad to be here. <laughs> How's it going? Good, good. Right, so what are you drinking tonight, Amanda? Well, since unfortunately I'm only about halfway through my workday, um, I have some lemon ginger tea. Lemon ginger tea. Yeah. Nice. I hear they have nice tea here in the speakeasy. <laughs> That's right. I'm having, in honor of speaking with somebody who is in the Big Apple, if I remember correctly. Is that right? That's right. You are in New York. That's what I thought. I am yeah. having a uh, specialty of the house here. It's called a fig tree grows in New York City. And it is the typical Manhattan, but in addition to the Angostura bitters, I'm also using some figgy pudding bitters made by the Arizona Bitters Company. Arizona Bitters Lab. Adds a nice little bit of sweetness. Nice. Sounds tasty. So, cheers. Absolutely. All right. So you are in the Big Apple. Uh, Brooklyn, if I remember correctly. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, that's right. So where are you from originally? Uh, originally I'm from Western Massachusetts. Um, I like to specify Western because otherwise people start saying, pack the cat, you know, and all that to me. <laughs> Obviously I don't talk like that cause that's like one teeny tiny part of the state, uh, near Boston. But where I'm from, it's a lot more like Vermont. It's uh, pretty rural. Oh, so. okay. Rural. Really? So, wow. Oh, must, yeah. must be a big change living in Brooklyn. Oh, totally. Um, yeah, at this point, I've been here for about 11 and a half years, so I've been here a while. But uh, the town that I lived in, you know, when I was going to high school, only had 1,800 people in it. Oh, my so... gosh. I know high schools <laughs> that are that big. <laughs> yeah, right? So, so yeah, so pretty rural. So when I came here, um, it was a pretty significant culture shock. I, uh, I didn't use the subway for the first full week I was here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I got over it eventually. And now, you know, it's just like living in a neighborhood of 8 million people. Yeah. <laughs> so. I'm, I'm sure that once you're there for a while, everything, you get used to everything about living around a lot of people. Oh, totally. Um, so what was like, what was life like growing up in, in a rural area with 1800 people in your town? <laughs> Um, geez, quiet. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> I um, I don't know, a lot of playing outside and riding around in pickup trucks, that sort of thing. <laughs> you got any brothers and sisters? Nope, I'm the only one. Only child. I'm the only one, yeah. All right. Well, that's cool. It sounds, uh, sounds like you've made a, a good transition to the big city. Yeah, yeah, it's, um... You know, I don't just work in books. I work sort of in entertainment in general. I do TV work and film work and that sort of thing. Um, and particularly, you know, I set out to do a lot of film composition. And there are really only two places in the country you can be for that. And that's here in L.A. Yeah, that's what and, I would guess. Yeah, and New York just appealed to me more than L.A. <laughs> in addition to 
a lot closer yeah. <laughs> to where you grew up. Oh, totally, totally. And just, you know, I like having the four seasons and um, culturally I fit in much better here than I do uh, in L.A. <laughs> have, have you spent much time in L.A.? Yeah, yeah. I go there usually at least once a year for various things. My mother actually grew up in Southern California, so sometimes um, I've gone out, you know, I went out there a lot as a kid for like family stuff and then also just for varying kind of career things or what have you. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, so that's good. So it sounds like you, you know that you're a better fit in New York, not just based on assumptions, but you've actually been there and spent some time there. Oh, totally. I mean, not, not really like any extended amount of time, but you know, I'm not really a warm weather person. Ah, <laughs> yeah, no, LA is not for you then. <laughs> what part of, uh, what part of LA did your mom grow up in? She actually grew up in Santa Barbara, so that's um like uh, an hour and a half, two hours north of there. God, it's beautiful there. We uh, I went on a vacation there with my wife a while back, and uh, yeah. this was this was probably eight or ten years ago, and it was too expensive for us then. I can't even imagine now. <laughs> yeah. But it was so <laughs> nice. It was uh, cooler than L.A. because it was on the coast and a little farther north. Still, kind of a kind of a small town feel until you got to the freeway, and then it was like you know constant traffic right through town. But uh, but it was beautiful out there. Loved it. Yeah, absolutely. My grandmother still lives there. She lives in a retirement trailer park. Um, wow, that's not a <laughs> phrase I've heard before. <laughs> no, but it's kind of great because she owns the trailer outright. So she just pays to, you know, be on the land. Sure, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's quite the place to uh, retire. I mean, she's lived there since, you know, for decades. But... Um, that's great. So but, you get to go yeah. out and visit grandma and enjoy Santa Barbara. Absolutely. Yeah, very cool. So when you got out of your uh, your high school in your 18, I keep thinking 1800 person high school, but it's 1800 <laughs> person town. So when you got out of high school, did you go to college? Yeah, um, the, I went to Smith College, which is also in Western Mass. Um, I had wanted to go, actually, I'd wanted to go to New York originally for undergrad, but uh, we couldn't afford it. Um, and we might have been able to, you know, I got a lot of grants and that sort of thing because I was a giant nerd. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was the sort of thing where my mom was like, well, we could possibly swing the first year with all the grants you got if you wanted to live in a low cost triple. But if the tuition literally raises at all, you'll have to come back and Your switch toast. schools. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, well, that's definitely going to happen. And also, you know, I graduated high school um, in 2002. So when I was going, you know, and touring in YU at that point, it was October 2001. Oh, man. So my parents, yeah, they were not super thrilled about the prospect of me, you know, being there. And um, it just kind of worked out. And Smith, you know, it's a great school. It's it's an all-women's college. It's, um, and, you know, it's a top 20 school, and they gave me a boatload of cash. So that worked out pretty well for me. Um, oh, yeah. So what did you do was, there? Uh, I was a music major. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, it's oh. my original. Yeah. I was, too, for a year and a half. And then I had to take music history, and I bailed. <laughs> it's it's funny, though, now, looking back at it, it's one of those things, yeah, I got a few regrets. And one of them is not being able to, not that I, that I couldn't, but not being able to really focus on history because now I look at it, I think I would love music history, but at the time I was just, I love theory. I don't want any of this history. And I started failing out of classes and I was like, okay, so much for music. 
<laughs> That's funny. I had a harder time with the theory than I did with the music because I was originally, or with the history rather, because I was originally self-taught. So I actually didn't really start seriously learning how to read and write music until I was maybe 16, 17. Because oh, I wanted to. Wow. Yeah, because I wanted to compose for film. Um, and I was like, you know, it's probably hard to stand in front of an orchestra and be like, okay, guys, it goes like this. You know, that might be a little yeah. bit of a challenge. That, so that is so I, cool. Yeah. I love hearing about <laughs> self-taught musicians. My nephew is an incredible guitarist, and he's never taken a lesson in his life. He's he's watched a bunch of videos and spent a lot of time on YouTube, but he's never yeah. actually taken an in-person lesson. And I don't know that he actually knows much theory, but he is he's amazing. So I'm I'm always really fascinated when I hear about people who can do that, who can be self-taught and be really good. Because for me, there was no way. I I <laughs> you know everything that I learned, I had to have somebody tell me, and I had to really study it that way. Um, so that's really cool. Well, thanks, but you know it can be it makes it hard when you have that kind of. It makes it hard to learn the actual you know written stuff when sure, you have yeah. that too. Then then you have I to back have... into the theory. Yeah, because I had some piano lessons when I was like 11, 12, which is also, you know, it's late for lessons still. But um, the problem that I had and my teacher eventually got wise to it was, you know, she would have a piece for me and then she'd be like, well, you know, let's play this. And I'd be like, oh, can I just, you know, hear you play it first so I can hear how it goes? And she'd be like, OK. And then when I played it later, it was really more based on that than it was based on, you know, actually reading right off the page. But and eventually she got, she she figured, got wise to yeah. you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it was. The it jig was, is up, know, babe. Yep. And I started, and I started coming in more often with stuff where she'd be like, oh, did you practice what I gave you last week? And I'd be like, well, no, but check out this cool thing I made up. And just like, all right, <laughs> you know, like, why are your parents paying me? I don't know. <laughs> that's funny. So that's, so, you know, music. I could see how that would easily kind of lead you into audio in general, audio engineering. So you were a music major. Did you get into anything along the audio engineering lines while you were in college or was that, did that come after? Yeah. Um, it, it's sort of a weird confluence. It's kind of even related to the audiobook thing where, um, so yeah, I was a music major and then I started getting into the engineering because I wanted to record my own stuff. So about halfway through, you know, undergrad, I got my first Mbox, you know, and I had mm -hmm. my power book before they had MacBooks. Um, and I started recording things, you know, in my dorm room. And that was sort of how I first got into that. And I'd always liked computers and been kind of a nerd generally. So I found myself getting really into the recording. And, you know, as you get to the end of college, or at least some people, especially, you know, liberal arts majors start to look around and be like, so... What's this going to translate oh, to yeah, you know, when I leave college? And I realized that, you know, in terms of being just like a composition major, it's like, well, uh, you could teach, which I had no interest in at the time, or you can be a barista. Yeah. <laughs> were kind of the two options. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, neither of those is appealing to me. So what I ended up doing is, at that point, I did. I applied to NYU again, uh, this time for their master's in music tech program. Ah, music and tech. That, and, so now it's still yeah. you're still involved in what you did an undergrad in. You're still involved in something you enjoy, but now you're learning more of the technical. Yeah, and meanwhile, my work study while I was at Smith was I worked for the uh, the Office of Disability Services, and I read books. I read homework assignments. Um, 
onto tape with those little dictation, you know, things. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, for blind and dyslexic students, you know, I would get a whole passel of, of, you know, these, I would get a couple of students and they'd be like, you know, this is their homework for the week. And I would sit and I would read it down onto those teeny tiny tapes for them. And that was my, that was my job. That's very cool. So that's an early introduction to the audiobook world. Yeah. Yeah. Circa, I don't know, 2003. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's very cool that, that it kind of went in that direction. So music and now music tech. And so you start learning music on your own, self-taught, and then you're a music major. And then you start learning audio software and recording and technical stuff on your own. And then you go into a program where it's more structured. Yeah. Yeah. So then I came, then I came down here to New York and I went to, uh, that master's program at NYU and I kind of split it up, you know, because NYU with Tish and everything is also very like film centered and film score centered. I got to take a bunch of classes with some of my, you know, favorite composers. And at the same time I could, yeah. And then I could take the, the more technically oriented classes as well. So it was kind of like this, you know, two pronged approach and, um, that's very and, cool. So who are some of your yeah. favorite composers? Um, you know, they've changed over the years. Um, when I was growing up as a teenager, I was really into Danny Elfman. I knew you I, were going to say that, <laughs> <laughs> especially in New York with all the film stuff. Yeah, less so now because I feel like he's been kind of repeating himself for like 15 years. But Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think that my tastes have kind of matured a lot. And I liked uh, Thomas Newman a lot. Um I mean, I just, what I always loved about film composing was just that you could, you, you could take advantage of so many different genres. You know, I was never, I have massive stage fright, so I was never interested in really doing a lot of performing myself. It's more the creating of the music that I, uh, was more interested in. So. Well, there's definitely, there's a need for that in, in all of the creative fields. I mean, when I was doing theater, being on stage, uh, it didn't take me long to realize that you can have the best actors in the world. And if you don't have a crew supporting it, you don't have a show. <laughs> so yeah, some, some people are out there in front and some people are not, and that's fine. Everybody is needed. Yeah. It's funny, you know, personality wise, people always think, you know, cause I'm sure, you know, I know you've seen me <laughs> on the internet and I'm not exactly shy, but it's a different thing. You oh, know, yeah. when you're doing something artistic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so after you did the, uh, the master's program, so you finished the master's program there at NYU? Yeah. So I finished that. And then for a little while I was doing live sound at a venue in the village. Wow. That's um, totally so, different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's sort of, you know, it, it really gave me, um, a crash course in troubleshooting tech stuff because you're in a high pressure situation, you know, where things, you know, the show has to go on right now and yeah, you're often time. dealing with. Yeah, and you're dealing with a lot of different setups. You know, one day you might have a four-piece band. Another day you might have a 30-piece orchestra. You know, it's going to be different every time. Sure. Um, And sort of as I was doing that, I did that for a little while. And that was sort of, you know, sporadic. And also the hours are, you know, I mean, you're working when everyone else is having fun. So So you have to realize that's your fun. Yeah, and also... (laughs) You know, depending, I mean, some people that's, that's their thing and they, and they will do that. But for me, you know, around 25, I was like, well, 
this is fun now, but you know, is 40 year old Amanda going to want to be doing this? And, right. you know, one day I came into the monitor, I did monitor engineering, which is when you're sending the mixes to the performers. And I came over to the console and I swept the beer cans <laughs> off of it from the guy who was there before me. And I thought, no, 40 year old Amanda probably doesn't want to be doing this. That's great. And, uh, what, what a great realization moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, weirdly enough, I, I, so I just started looking around for different, you know, audio gigs and I saw a listing on Craigslist of all places that was very mysterious. It didn't say initially what it was, but it said, do you like to read? You know, do you know how to record audio? And I was like, yes, yes to both of those things. Um, and it turned out to be a job recording, um, and editing at the, at Talking Books, which is the studio run by the American Foundation for the Blind here in New York. Oh. Um, and it actually went out of business about a year after that. So I was only there for a year. I'm sure um, nobody listening will blame you. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did find out on my first day, it was hilarious. I interviewed, I got the job. I came in on my first day, they brought me in and I was like, geez, am I already, you know, they were like come into the office and I was like, am I already in trouble? Like I've been here for like five minutes. <laughs> and they said, so we're going out of business. And I was like, oh, that was right after you started the day. Oh my God. They told me the day I started. <laughs> and then I said, well, how much time do I have? And they had said about a year. And I was like, okay, that'll do, you know? Sure. Yeah. Um, get what you can from it. I'm sure that it was an environment where you could learn something new. You could learn new techniques and whatnot. I mean, totally. Look, in this field, look, first of all, it was 2008. So we're hitting, you know, right at the recession. You know, I've just finished my master's program. And, you know, I'm like, sure, sounds great to me. <laughs> yeah, why not? Um, so I did that. And then they went out of business. And then about a month or so after that, I got a salary job at a post studio here in town, in part because they were looking to get into audiobooks. And I already had experience with that. So. Nice. Uh, yeah, so that was where I started really doing, you know, that's where several hundred of those, I think I, I say 700, but at this point it's, I think it's probably closer to a thousand cause I've been saying that for like a couple of years. That's what I thought. I, I used that because <laughs> I know that I've seen you post that and I'm thinking I've seen that for quite a while now. Jeez, it must be at least <laughs> 800 by now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's. It's it's not like I'm counting specifically. It's more that I took like an I have you know archived drives that have all the books. Uh, you know I yeah. ke I keep them as long as I can. I have several years back, and I kind of looked at them and I took an average of the years, and then I just multiplied that basically since I've been doing this because there's no way you can really count that many. Well, I'm sure you can you can take it to a thousand now, and nobody will question that. So yeah. so when you first got in, you were so when you first started working after school, you were doing live sound. I know that in general, I've seen you post about the fact that audio engineering is a male dominated field as as oh. are many fields, but it's it's one that <laughs> is very male dominated. I have to imagine that live sound maybe is even more male dominated than the rest of audio oh, engineering. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, so was that a problem? So, yeah, I mean. So to put it in perspective, uh, AES, which is the Audio Engineering Society, it's the biggest trade organization for audio engineers. Their membership is 7% female. Wow. So it's very, yeah, it's That's pretty. That's low. 
Yeah, it's low. <laughs> it's low. <laughs> you know, I joke, actually, their convention was just a couple of weeks ago. And I always joke that, you know, AES, the only place where there's never a line for the ladies room. Um, <laughs> I make that same joke at the game developers conference when I go because, you know, same, same thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, live sound was definitely more so. And that's for a number of reasons. I mean, it's look, you're grimy, you know, you're crawling around on the ground with tools. Um, and there's a lot of lifting because you're lifting and moving gear a lot of the time and load ins and load outs and yeah um and so, a, lot, a lot of the yeah. gear for i know that a lot of the gear for live events is incredibly large so undoubtedly incredibly heavy oh, yeah. as well yeah yeah i mean especially if you have to it depends on the show but i remember at that venue you know we'd have like they might be giants sometimes and they'd come in with like a you know, like a moving truck's worth of, of gear. And for some just of that a couple st- of guys. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. you know, some of that stuff, um, no one person could ever lift it by themselves, but I definitely, and it's like, look, you know, I mean, I haven't been lifting a lot lately, so I don't know if this is a hundred percent right now accurate, but in general I can deadlift 205 pounds. So it's not, I'm not, you know, that is not insubstantial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I can, I can pull my way and I'm pretty sturdy, you know, I'm, I'm five, seven. I'm, I'm, uh, not wafy. Yeah. So I can definitely, I can definitely hold my own in that, but there's, yeah, I mean, I had people, uh, you know, dudes pull stuff right out of my hands, you know, when I Be- was... because they assumed you couldn't do it. Yeah, which is kind of funny when you're literally doing it that moment and then yeah. somebody walks up to you, you know, but, um, you know, or people would, you know, because it was a, it was also a venue that had food and various things. People would try to give me their drink orders and, um, ah, sometimes right. assuming you're, assuming you're providing a different function at the venue than you were actually providing. Yeah. 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 They're like, you have boobs. You must be a waitress. Yeah. Wow. But, <laughs> or uh my favorite is the band looking straight at you and saying you know where's our sound guy <laughs> oh man yeah uh, hello challenges <laughs> but uh yeah i mean those those things factor in but it's one of those things where all of my you know for whatever reason, all of my hobbies, pretty much, and interests have always been kind of male-dominated. So I think if there's anybody suited to handle it, I do an okay job. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. Sounds like you can hold your own with all of the uh, all of the males in the male-dominated industry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... When people... You know, it's funny, because I know I'm very vocal about it online, and people are like, God, why is she always complaining? And... Some of that is is calculated because I know that I'm lucky enough that my personality is just, you know, I'm okay with doing that. It doesn't have a great mental cost for me, or at least not as great as it does for some other people. Yeah, so sort of, it, it can be yeah. difficult. I mean, depending on who you are, bringing stuff like that up can be difficult, whether it's politics, feminism, whatever it is, uh, it can be difficult. It seems to me, and, and I view this as a good thing, it seems to me that it's getting easier um, but, uh, my guess is it's still going to be an uphill battle for probably longer than I'll be alive. Yeah. I mean, it really depends <laughs> on who you are. I mean, in recent, you know, I didn't used to bring this stuff up as much. And in recent years, I have felt a little bit more secure in my, you know, in my industry and in my sort of skills and my 
the flow of work coming my way. And I felt kind of like it's a time where I can afford to be more vocal about those things without really facing a lot of repercussions. So I do for right. that reason, because I know that there are people who can't. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they can't. And so since it, since it should be done, it needs to be done and you're in a position where you can, that's great that you, that you saw it that way. Yeah. I mean, look, I've been in, I've been in situations, you know, where I couldn't as well. Like, and it's funny cause people, people view me so much now as like crazy feminist girl, but I never would have even called myself a feminist until my late twenties, probably. Um, even though, you know, I went to a women's college, but I was very much, I was not in that camp. And it's not that I, not because I didn't, you know, believe in equality for women or whatever, but because I didn't realize how necessary it was. I thought, yeah, I was just going to say there's, there's a big difference between not being in that camp because you're anti that camp and not being in that camp because you don't really see it. Yeah. And, you know, I've always been kind of a, a stirrer of shit, as they say, you know, I mm -hmm. kind of have fun with that. So, you know, I'm the person who shows up to orientation at an all women's school and when they go around and ask everybody what they're there for i say well i'm just here to find a nice man you know like <laughs> yeah it's, so i didn't you know and everybody there in a in a situation like that is all like feminism i'm like yeah whatever you know and, <laughs> and then i got here and i started you know working in this you know 93 percent dude field and um one of my early experiences i was interning at a studio uh, a post-production studio in downtown manhattan and um there were 10 male interns and me wow. and i don't know some of your listeners might not realize this but like the interning world in entertainment in general but you know i can speak to audio engineering is really brutal. I mean, they're all unpaid, of course, unpaid internships. They usually require at least 30 hours a week of unpaid work. Jeez, and 30 hours unpaid. Oof. Oh, yeah. And they and I was doing the way I did that is I did it at the same time as I was in grad school. So, you know, it was a lot, a lot going on. And it's usually it's very, you know, demeaning work too. by design. A lot of the time it's looked at as sort of a dues paying thing. So, you know, we would have to do things like clean the toilets and that kind of stuff. Like that was just part of what you were expected to do for the privilege of being around people doing a job that you would like to one day do. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, I can uh, understand that. And I'm sure that there are a lot of people who they they'll do an internship like that specifically because they know even though I'm doing grunt work right now I get to know people I make contacts and I really do want to be in this industry and so uh, I you know you can understand that but it doesn't make it any any more fun yeah and also i mean i could you know i don't want to go too far into a rabbit hole but it's also illegal and that's you know a whole other thing but yeah um but so in this particular instance at this studio um this was pretty much i had Either I don't think I was actually out of grad school yet. I think it was during the sort of last year of it. And uh, we had just um, I was staying a little later than some of the other interns because I was finishing. They had let me work on this project and I was really excited about it. And so I was coming down in the elevator with the head engineer and he's complaining that, you know, we hadn't cleaned the studio to his, you know, very high standards. And uh he turns to me in the elevator and he says, well, you're a woman. Maybe you can teach them how to do a better job. Oh my God. Well, and I, and I wait, right. 
because this was still before feminist Amanda and I didn't want to be that girl who couldn't take a joke and right. you know so I wait a beat thinking he's gonna laugh or say something else and he and he doesn't and then I wait another beat and I look at him and I'm just like yeah, you know, and then I could like make you a sandwich afterwards. Like, how, <laughs> how would that be? And he kind of takes a look at me, and and as I'm leaving, like I'm just sort of thinking, wow, I thought all of you were dead. <laughs> this is still a thing. Like <laughs> we're great. still doing that. You know, that was kind of like a, you know, that was sort of like a scene setting for the later feminist Amanda, where sure, some yeah. version of that happened to me rather frequently over the next few years and i realized that no they're not all dead yeah <laughs> you know? wow here's something yeah. like that great comeback great comeback well by the way like for people like i don't know <clears throat> how old you know you guys think i am but that was only 2008 it wasn't that long ago so i don't <laughs> know how old you are although the dates that you've given me so far it has certainly given me some idea but to hear it stated that was 2008 Mm-hmm. that's, um, yeah, that's a little eye opening because it's, it's easy to hear that story and think, okay, so I'm in my fifties. I grew up when feminism was kind of, it was, I don't remember what they call it. I think the second wave or something like that starting in the seventies. Yeah. And, um, and so that's the, the idea that I have when I think of feminism and women speaking out and stuff like that. And then everything kind of shifted back down a little bit, getting into the eighties and nineties. And now it's kind of coming up again to hear that it was only less than 10 years ago when somebody would make a comment like that and be dead yeah. serious about it is yeah. kind of uh, startling when you think about it that way. Yeah. So I'm, I, I don't, you know, I don't subscribe to that ladies thing. of not saying how old you are. I'm 33. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, I think a lot of people, I thought that way too, you know, mm -hmm. that's why I was like, whatever feminism, you know, that's a thing that we did and it was good. We did it, but it's done, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then a few things like that happened and then that sort of led me to be the way I am now. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So, uh, so you were talking about guys and, and being in the male dominated field. Um, but I know that you have a guy, I believe that you are married. I do. So, yes. uh, so how, I think it's been a couple of years now, if I remember correctly. Yep. Just over two years. Two years. Yeah. So how's, uh, how's everything being a married person compared to being a single person in the audiobook engineering field or in the sound uh, audio <laughs> engineering field? Well, um, you know, we, it's funny people have been have just recently stopped saying how's married life finally yeah. and um and here i, I am always, starting it up again <laughs> <laughs> i i always say well we lived together for five years before we got married oh uh, so, quite a while yeah so you've you been know, together it for was, a while yeah and he's a grip uh he works he's a dolly grip which is the the guy who kind of does all those smooth camera shots or he doesn't run the camera but he runs the you know apparatus that i didn't realize that i didn't know that he was in the industry too yeah, he works on all the Marvel shows. Oh wow! So, yeah, like Luke that, Cage, that is Daredevil. Big time these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he he gets it. You know, he's um, in you know on set they work minimum twelve hour days. Like they start at twelve and they frequently go over, and they can start. I mean, they can start any time at the day too. Like sometimes he'll do rolling hours where on Monday they start really early in the morning at like six in the morning to like six p.m. And then by the time you get to Friday, 
it's an overnight because you know all those cool night fighting scenes that you see they have to shoot those at night yeah that's um, uh that, that can be rough i've only been in one yeah. film and we had one well we had a couple nights that were that were long but one of them I don't think I got home until five or six in the morning. And uh, I think we started at about noon the day before Uh, that was, it was, it was a brutal day, but I know that people who work in the industry do that shit all the time. Yeah. And it, you know, it really works out for us in a way because we, we get it, you know, with each other. Like he jokes, people always say, well, how does she deal with, they call they call us set widows, you know, (laughs) Uh, people who, and they're like, how does she deal with it? And he always says, I think she probably works more hours than I do. Yeah. (laughs) So you do work a lot of hours. Do you work mostly at home? I know that you work at studios as well. Do you, do you work mostly at home or mostly at studios or is it kind of an even mix? It varies a lot. Like there are some weeks, like I have a couple weeks coming up in December where I'm going to be um, at Random House and Studio like every day for like a week and a half. Um, and then I have like this whole week I had, you know, I have a booth at home too. I got a, I have a Studio Bricks Triple Wall Pro and mm-hmm. I have people come in and record here. So I had a session here yesterday, but this week I'm home editing all week. So it really goes back and forth. I try to diversify a lot you know like I have a lot of clients um that are you know that work through ACX or various means where they where they're actors that send me their work uh to work on I have clients that come and record here I have studios in town and some of them are audiobook places like Random House some of them are not some of them are animation or education or various other kinds of things um tv uh, I try to, I try to make, um, I try to spread it out as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it sounds I like a, it sounds like an interesting mix of being able to get out of the house and staying in the house. Um, how much control do you have over whether or not you're staying in the house? I mean, total in a way, because since I, you know, I'm a freelancer slash small business owner, um, if I don't want to do a job, I just say no. <laughs> yeah. And so. my guess is that you have enough work to where you could probably do that fairly frequently. <laughs> yeah, I probably should do that more than I do, but I just I love I love the work so much that Sure, yeah, it um, comes along. There it is. Yeah, and a lot of people, you know, have hobbies and things like that. And I I always joke that, you know, oftentimes I feel people need hobbies because they dislike their work, but I kind of get both of those things out of it in a way. I mean, not to say that there aren't things other than work that I like to do. There are. Sure. But I think that my workaholic tendencies are in part because I just enjoy doing it. So, some, you know. That is, that is awesome. So <laughs> one one last thing on your home booth. So when you have somebody come in to record in your booth, are you actually playing the role of director at that point? Um, to varying degrees. It really depends on what people want. You know, sometimes people come in and they've got a pretty lax deadline and maybe it's their first book or first couple of book, you know, you know, one in the first couple of books and they might say they want more directing and I'll definitely do that. Um, and sometimes, you know, they're pros and we're just, you know, I'll do a little bit of directing to the degree that they need it, but we might, you know, kind of cook it, you know, go a little quicker. Sure. Um, yeah. And it depends on the work that I do, you know, like when I'm doing voice directing for animation, I tend to do more directing there in terms of like acting, directing. Mm-hmm. Um, and with books, you know, I, it really depends on what people want. 
Sure. Uh, I try yeah. to sort of feel it out. Some people like a more hands-on approach and some people don't. Um, and I, you know, I'm fine with either way. <laughs> That's cool. So how much of your work at this point do you think would is in the audiobook world? I mean, I know that you're talking about animation and film and other things. Um, so in terms of the work itself, not the stuff that you do on the side, like composing or, or whatnot in the music area, but in terms of the actual work that people are hiring you to do for audio engineering, how much of it is audiobooks? Um, probably a good half at least, because that sort of encompasses a lot of different things, right? Like if I go into a studio like Random House or if I'm recording people here or if I'm editing, you know, I probably have somewhere around 30 different narrators that send me their ACX books. And, mm. Wow, that's um, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not all at once. No, know, no, I all... understand. <laughs> but, but but it's still, it's a, um, that's a fairly large number of people who I assume are working fairly regularly. Yeah. And, the, you know, and I'm not, they don't necessarily use me exclusively. I mean, I, people will sometimes come to me and say, are you taking new clients? And I'm like, well, I don't have, it's all first come first serve you right know? depends on the timing yeah. yeah um nobody has really priority i i worked for a studio for about five years where i was staff and i was salary and which is very unusual as an engineer these days um i you know for a long time i was afraid to go freelance because i was worried about lack of stability mm, sure, um yeah but what I came to realize, you know, sort of basically, you know, that's a long story, so I won't get into the whole story of how that happened. But I did, you know, I did end up, the situation became untenable after a while. And I ended up being like, I just got to take the leap and see what happens. And I did. And what I came to realize as I gathered, you know, more clients is that we're all freelance. But if you're salary, it just means you only have one client. Mm, yeah. Like, at and, the end of the day, and you know. at, and the world the way it is today, I, I came to realize I don't know ten or fifteen years ago, not like it was in your father's day when you you know work yeah. for thirty years and get a gold watch. Now um, it's you're you're definitely at in danger of being fired, no matter what the job is, and no matter who you're working for, and no matter how stable you think it is. So uh, we're all just you know one phone call away from not having a job, yeah. even if we have a salaried position. Yeah, and you know, and no, and also nobody's ever going to have as much interest in you know stake in your career as you do. Right. So right. I've found you know, even though initially I needed a real kick in the butt to do it, um, I've found as I guess I've been um, running my own business now for about three and a half years, and I've come to yeah, you know, it's just really rewarding because everything directly you know benefits you. Mm -hmm. And if there's somebody you're working with who's not respecting you, you don't have to work with them. Yeah, it's not like when you're tied <laughs> tied to that paycheck and you're uh, you're yeah. thinking, well, I can't say anything to my employer. And you're like, oh, my boss sucks. And then yeah. this, you know. <laughs> my boss sucks. And He's not my boss anymore. There, done. Yeah, I've definitely sort of fired clients as it is, and I don't, you know, I I don't usually dramatic. You know, I'm not like you are fired, client. You right. Know, I just you just don't of... work with them again. <laughs> Yeah. And that's, um, and I feel like you, it really gives you an opportunity to craft, you know, make your own destiny and, yeah, and you empowering. don't have to, yeah, you don't have to ask anyone for time off. Like last week I went, um, actually my old boss at that 
concert venue that I worked at, you know, so long ago. Uh, now he's a professor at Michigan Tech up, up in the Upper Peninsula. And I went out there. Uh, they got a grant to bring me in as a visiting lecturer. So I got to talk to baby audio engineers. <laughs> That's great. I bet you love yeah. that. Oh, it was. I'm it a nerd in great. this field. You're nerds in this field. Let's have at it. <laughs> yeah, I That's think I might great. have scared them a little, but it was, <laughs> it was still a lot of fun. And um, but you know that sort of thing, I can just do it. I don't have to ask anybody. I don't have to, you know, take time off or whatever. I just, you know, I just go. Yeah, that's great. So, so in terms of the audiobook engineering, when when you're doing that, um, what are some common situations that come up when you're doing that? So, um, so let's start with the good. So, from your perspective, from the perspective of the editor and the engineer, what's the ideal workflow when you're working with a narrator directly? Um. So are we talking about like if they're recording at home and yeah. send me? Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're just some somebody, uh, an individual hired you, whether it's through ACX or some other way, and they say, I'm recording this book, um, let's work together. And, and you say, okay, I got time, I'll take it on. Um, well, usually, usually what I do is I send them, I have kind of a boilerplate that's maybe four or five paragraphs that says what my rates are and what I expect from people and what they should expect from me and that kind of thing. And so I send that off and then that's sort of the first, um, first contact kind of thing. And then if they're cool with everything in there, um, usually, you know, we'll share a Dropbox folder, um, and they'll just start putting up stuff for me. Um, I generally these days, when it comes to individual narrators, I mostly only work with punch and roll material mm-hmm. um, just because it's so hard. You know, it's very easy to sort of figure out the rate on that and like how long it's going to take you within reason. And uh, open record stuff is just such a case by case basis, especially when people are home recording because some people will just, you know, take the same line 10 times. And, you know, um, there's no real way to for sure know the editing ratio on that. So it's very hard to come up with rates. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, cause you know, just like you guys, you know, your actors get paid per finished hour. So do we. Um, and that's kind of, even though that's different from other industries, there's something kind of comforting about it in a way, because you always know how much you're going to get paid. And then as the person who's paying, you always know how much you have to pay. Um, but what that means for me is that I, yeah, I generally only take, uh, material that doesn't have retakes in it. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that on an open record, cause I used to open record for the first, I don't know, uh, three, four five books I did, whatever it was. And yeah. open recording, um, it it really depends on the book and how I was feeling and how things went as to how much I would have, how much time I would have to take to actually get things out. So I'm sure that at, when you're looking at it as, oh, I'm, you know, getting paid for this and I have to be really careful about not saying, okay, I'll take whatever your rate is, 60 or 80 or $100 an hour, and then mm. end up spending five hours per finished yeah. hour, you know, I mean, when you're looking at things oh, like that. Oh, Rich, for open record, it's, it's more than that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not surprised. Thing. I mean, for, for that kind of, not always, but like it very quickly can become more than that. And, yeah. and even more, cause when people are open recording at home, it's generally because they're new, which adds a sort of other layer of, you know, if they are open recording and if they are new, it means they're probably doing a lot of retakes. And I know a few of my clients do open record. They think I don't know, but (laughs) I I run into the odd retake or not deleted clicker, you know, sound Uh, here and there. Got it. Um, 
you know, so it's not to say I don't work with people that on the front end still record that way. Wow, that um, seems to me that that's a huge amount of extra work on the part of the narrator because now they're going through and doing a first pass edit before sending the the file to their editor. Yeah. Am I misunderstanding I, that or is that is no, that what you're talking I, about? I don't know how else they would do it. So yeah, you know, you're right. I I think that anybody who's, you know, again seen me on the internet knows how I feel yes. <laughs> about <laughs> the punch and roll debate. I think that um, I think it's crazy not to do it personally, but yeah. as long as they're not leaving in a ton of retakes for me or preferably any, um, it doesn't, you know, not a huge doesn't deal. matter so much. Yeah. And in different, different people have differing abilities to keep their performance, um, steady. Yeah. There have yeah, been some that's... interesting conversations about that, uh, about the fact that, well, I actually feel like, and I've had this verified by other people. I'm not saying this, but, but I have seen it written that somebody feels like they can actually get a more consistent performance if they are open recording. And I always find that interesting because I know that, you know, in any creative venture, you're going to have a lot of different ways of working. And it is certainly possible that that's true. I know that for me, once I did pick up punch and roll and yes, that first several days <laughs> or first several weeks, start. probably. Yeah. It was damn frustrating. Um, but once I did pick it up, I felt like, oh, yeah, no, I can absolutely stay in character. I can I can keep the same flow going more easily this way than I could the other way. But it is interesting. You know, everybody's got a different process. Yeah. I mean, I th I think, I mean, one story I tell people often, and granted, it's a little bit different when you're punch and rolling with an engineer than when you're doing it yourself. But, you know, a lot of it has to do with just sort of your workflow, like how much pre-roll are you leaving yourself? You know, what program are you using? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that a lot of the problems those people have could be solved with just some tweaking on that end. Because I tell them, I'm like, look, you know, early in my career, I did a book with a Iraq War veteran. It's an author read. He had done two tours in Iraq. He had a traumatic brain injury. Um, and he had to have his service dog in the booth with him as he recorded. And so this was a very challenging record. And I'm like, you know, and I taught him to punch and roll in 30 minutes. Yeah. So, and it got nominated for an Audi. That's so awesome. I tell people like, you know, you're an actor. I know you can do it. You can. I know it. you can do it. Yeah. yeah if it, I could teach him to do it, you can do it. Yeah. It's but, always frustrating, but you can do it. So, yeah. so it sounds like, like, um, Open recording is one of the big bugaboos. So what else? So let's say a narrator has decided, okay, they're going to outsource their editing and mastering. They're going to hire Amanda Rose Smith, but they're, um, they're not sure where to turn. So, so I should say they, they haven't decided to hire you. They've decided to hire an editor, but they're not sure, you know, what they should okay. do. If, if you talk to that person, what do you tell them they should ask for other than you should hire me? I mean, you know, what, <laughs> what is it that you tell them they should look for when they're looking for an editor? Well, I think that it's important to have somebody with very clear communication. You know, like, for instance, how I have that kind of boilerplate that I send to people. I think anyone you work with should have something like that, should be very clear about what they provide. Because otherwise you run into situations where you get miscommunications where you thought editor meant this and they thought editor meant that. Right. You, you, know. get, you get towards um, the end and you go, but you didn't do X. So I wasn't going to do X. Yeah, you never asked for that. Exactly, like, well, yeah. That's what an editor is. That's not what I think. So yeah. even though, you know, 
I have some very clear ideas about what I think the different terms mean, I make sure from the get-go that people are very clear on what I think, you know, about that. So that's one thing I would probably look for. Um, I also, I think it depends on, you know, what you were looking for from them, you know, different people, different skill sets. There are a lot of people that call themselves editors that aren't really engineers. Mm. And, you know, in, in that they might have the ability to sort of do the basic level of editing audio that is to delete things or add tone or, you know, but they might not know a lot about processing and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, my personal feeling is that I think it should be holistic in that I don't like separating out the different, I don't really like the idea of having someone edit who doesn't know what mastering is, for instance, because uh, got it. how are they going to know how certain things will affect other things if they only know one part of the process? And it's hard because most companies keep those jobs very separate. You know, I worked at a small studio. We only had a few employees. And at one point, you know, I was production manager. So I was, you know, overseeing the different parts of the process. So I got a really intimate look at, you know, proofing and editing and mastering and recording. Um, So I've done all those things. But like, for instance, at places like Audible, it's a little different now because they outsource a lot of it. But, you know, the person who edits the book might have never recorded one in their life. You know, uh, and the people that, that they yeah. hire, yeah, and the people they hire to record, they don't edit for Audible. You know, those aren't the same job. They're completely different. So, and the, even and with mastering, usually that's a completely different job too. So you get people who really only have knowledge of one part of the process. And I think that it's an incomplete, you know, picture of yeah, the puzzle. I could, I could see that because on, on the one hand you could say, well, you know, so somebody's an expert in whatever they do, but when what they're doing is a whole package and a lot of things went into that package, it's always better if you know everything else that went into it. Yeah. So, you know, things like I would try to keep, for instance, the same person editing the entire book. That's something that I think is important. Um, And obviously that doesn't really, it's probably not really applicable for what we're talking about because I would hope you wouldn't be sending different parts of your book to different editors. Well, I've never heard of that, but you never know. <laughs> um, but I mean, studios, that's a pretty common thing. You know, when we're talking about the, the bigger studios, that tends to happen a lot. Because they have, um, to, they have to chop up the work so that it gets to people who are on, on the clock. Yeah, they're trying to crank it out, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's not unheard of to have books recorded in multiple rooms even, which is like... Ooh, yikes. Yeah, it makes me kind of scream inside, but it happens. Um, But yeah, so I personally think that people should look for somebody who does all of it. Um, That person's going to, yeah, that person's going to cost more, but they're going to cost less than paying for those things, you know, a la carte. Individually, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That makes sense. So somebody says, okay, well, that sounds great. I got your boilerplate. All this sounds good. I'm going to hire you. You, uh, you said you share a Dropbox folder and so they upload their files, whatever it is. Um, well, actually, uh, as part of this question, I'm going to say mm-hmm. they upload their chapters or they upload their files that have multiple chapters. Um, so what, what, what do you do with those files and tell me what you think about recording chapters separately, which <laughs> I think I've heard before. Well, I think so. I think what you mean, what I see this debate a lot in the forums is creating a new session for each chapter. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I don't personally think that that's a good idea because I think it creates a disjointed pro uh, product. I think that when you can't see, you know, what I do, and I have a number of DAWs on my computer, I typically default to editing in Pro Tools just because it's the one I've been using the longest. Mm -hmm. But I have about seven different ones that I use for different things in my career, um, depending on what I'm doing. Like sometimes if I'm batching certain processes that I know that I'm going to have to do across an entire book, I might do it in Twisted Wave because they've got a great batch function. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I can double up on work where I know, okay, this book across the board is going to require this denoising and this DSing, say, you know. And I might do those things before I even start editing, possibly, depending on the project. It depends a lot on the audio because I get audio of varying quality, um, of highly varying quality, you mm -hmm. know, from different people. So, Sometimes there will be things that I just know, okay, the entire book needs this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to have that process running into a wave because I know it's going to take like an hour or whatever. And then meanwhile, I'll be editing this other book, you know, in Pro Tools because I can have them both running at the same time. Sure, yeah. Um, so generally what I do, it, once I've done any sort of pre-processing that I think is necessary, I bring all the files into Pro Tools and I line them all up um, because I like to see the entire book in front of me. And then what I generally do is I put the plugins as that I'm probably going to be using for mastering as inserts on the track. And what that means is I'm hearing what the files would sound like post process, post mastering, mm -hmm. but I'm not actually processing them. Right. Right. Not, so, not yeah. until you render it. Right. Exactly. So it right. lets me hear it basically like I'm listening to the final master, which I think is important to be listening to the final product. Um, but it's still tweakable because the processing hasn't actually happened yet. So for instance, if I come across a section where somebody's yelling and I'm like, Oh, that compressor is really hitting it too hard. I can make adjustments and, you know, because nothing's been permanently um, processed. And it also, when I do the final master at the end, it allows me to sort of skip around because what I'll typically do is I'll sort of, move the cursor around from like chapter one to chapter 10, chapter 19. And typically it should sound like some sort of nonsense sentence that's continuing one from the other. Like it should right. all sound the same. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. Mm -hmm. So you listen and then you just instantaneously move it to someplace else and say, does yeah. this all sound the same? Yeah. So, uh, so you have somebody who gives you chapters or sections or whatever it is, and you said you line them up. So do you mean that you put all of those files into one track? Yep. So you basically have, if you've got a 10-hour audiobook, you have a single track that is 10 hours long. Yep. Okay. And a lot of people think that that's bad. There's nothing bad about it. Um, Pro, All the dolls are a little bit different, but Pro Tools has a limit of, I want to say, like 15, 16 hours, um, which I have gotten to the end of before, very, very rarely. Yeah, there's a few um, books out there that are that long. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've done a book that's 40 hours long oh, um, early man. in my career. <laughs> Yikes. But, uh, yeah, but, um, I think the mistake people are probably making is they're thinking it's true that a single audio file that's really, really long can be unstable. But when you're working in a session based program like Pro Tools or Reaper or Studio One, um, you're dealing with a lot of short files. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't, that's not an issue. So you when know, you there's... say unstable, you you mean like an individual wave file that is five or six or eight hours long on its own 
could be unstable. But when you're working in the session, in the DAW, you're dealing with a lot of small files, so you don't actually, at that point, have a wave file that is 10 hours long. Is that what you Correct. mean? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. And that's hard for some people to grasp because different programs work differently. Like Twisted Wave, for instance, that whatever you record in that one file is one file. You know, but that's because that's what we call a destructive editor. Right. Yeah. I uh -huh. use Twisted Wave and I love it for certain things. And I realized that it's not really appropriate for other things. No, I mean, and like I said, the batching in Twisted Wave is amazing. Mm -hmm. I use it um, and I use it for video game work all the time for that reason, too, because it's great when you're working with a lot of individual files that you want to be able to just edit quickly and save and close. Because with Pro Tools, you know, you have to consolidate all the little files together and then you have to save it. It's like a whole thing and you have to label it, relabel it. And it's just, you know, that can be time consuming. So, you know, all the different programs are, di are better for different things. So when somebody's like, Oh, what's the best program? There isn't one. Right. I mean, it's like saying, what's the best color? Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, there isn't one. Yeah. Um, I, I know that even things like operating systems have gotten that way too. Um, really windows and Mac, it's more a matter of preference now than a matter of what they can do there. I think that there's still a little bit of a difference in what they are geared for, but overall it's more of a preference than anything else. Yeah. I mean, for me and the reason why I'm still a Mac user um, even though they've made some decisions in recent years that I haven't been wild about, but, um, I like the singularity of it. I like that when I go into an Apple store, they know exactly what I'm working with and how it, you know, how mm -hmm. to fix it. And if you have a PC, that's just not a thing. You know, if you have an HP laptop, it's not like you're going to the manufacturer, right. you know, you're going to Best Buy and they'll know what they know, but there's no way they could possibly know as much as someone at the Genius Bar knows about your Mac. Right. And that's, you know. And I, I me, like that aspect too. I, I use a Mac as well, and I like that aspect as well. Uh, it's just in terms of using them, they're so similar now in terms of what they support and what, oh, totally. what softwares are available to both. Although so. Twisted Wave. Twisted Wave is only available on Mac still. Oh, lucky me. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> although Osin Audio, I think that's how you say it, O-C. I've never, I've never been <laughs> sure about that. I look at that and I think, why do people come up with names that people can't understand? They, right? they can't know how to pronounce them immediately. They have to take a guess. But I, yeah, I, I've know. definitely heard of that. And um, I think I actually downloaded it. I haven't tried it yet, but... It's um, great. Yeah? Um, I had, yeah, I hadn't really used it for a while either because it's just like you only have so many. I'm like, well, I have Twisted Wave, I have Reaper, I have Pro Tools, right. I have Studio One, I have Audacity. I have, you know, That's like, on a whole new set of keystrokes. Um, but recently I was, you know, I, I think it's really good for people who are tech-averse because it's very simple. It's very similar to Twisted Wave actually mm. um except for it has uh punch and roll mm -hmm. and it works equally well on mac and pc yep, that's so great. Yeah. that gets rid of two of the it doesn't have batching in the same way that twisted wave does which means it's less useful for me specifically but i find it's really i i'm recommending it to a lot of people who are asking what they should use because i think it's uh it's very simple um and you know, Reaper can be intimidating to a lot of people. Yeah, Studio One as well. I got to say, I'm I'm a nerd from way back. I mean, I spent 20 years in yeah. data, database design and development, and so I'm no stranger to computers and to different software packages. And I got into programming and just all kinds of stuff. 
And I started Studio One, and I was frustrated no end because to me it was not intuitive at all. My guess is there are people out there who think that Studio One is incredibly intuitive. They do this, this, this. Oh, <laughs> look, I'm ready to go. That was not my experience at all, and I was I was so frustrated. Yeah. But then it ended up working out fine. I use it all the time now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit more. I think on like the scale of user friendliness, I find it to be more user friendly than Reaper. Mm. Um, but it's still, you know, it's still pretty complicated. Um, yeah. and that's, yeah. And, and I, I'm not the biggest audacity fan personally. I mean, I used to say that it's one good big thing was that it was free, but now with those and audio, it's a lot simpler and it's also free. So competition. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> Um, it's not, you know, also audio is just the one track and audacity does have multi-track ability, but in, mm. you know, for books and VO, that's just not really necessary. So, yeah. So um, one last thing about what you go through when you get the file. So you put everything mm -hmm. together, you got your file and you do the editing. And there was a recent thread in the indie audiobook narrators and producers Facebook group about mastering and about mastering chapter by chapter versus mastering all at once. Now I know that you are definitely a proponent of mastering everything all at once. Yeah. Tell me about why. So the whole point of mastering is to create a cohesive product, right? Like what I was talking about earlier about sort of moving the cursor throughout the entire book, you know, the 10 hours mm -hmm. and how it should sound um, the same. Like what I tell people often is that a book, if it's well edited and well mastered, it should sound like somebody just sat down for 10 hours, read a book, got up and left. Straight through, yeah. You know, like that's what it should sound like, um, you know, in terms of consistency and and all of that. And yeah, you can, if what you mean by master is to hit the specs that ACX requires in order for your stuff to not get sent back to you, yeah, you can do that chapter by chapter. But I feel that in order to get that, cohesive you know it, 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 your listener should never have to reach for the volume mm -hmm. there should never be a time where they're listening along and then something happens and they're like oh god and they have to you know if that happens you know that means there's something wrong in the mastering stage and how can you really know if you're mastering to a specific spec and not the product to itself right because i don't Another part of that is that I don't process every file the same. It's not a batch. You know, I might do, you know, I talked about batch processing earlier. I might do certain initial processing that way um, just to get certain basic stuff out of the way, like maybe noise removal, for instance, or decrackling or something like that. Mm -hmm. But after that, in terms of the dynamic stuff, um, I'm mastering it all to itself. So there's going to be... You know, usually what I'll do is I'll, con you know, I have that whole timeline open, that one track, and then I have, it's filled with files, usually one per chapter at that point, and then I start tweaking. Now, as I was editing, I was probably, if there are sections within a given chapter that were a little bit off from each other, because it does sometimes happen, I probably did that tweaking while I was editing. But uh. at this point... Yeah. You so, know. so that's important because what I'm wondering is if you've got a book where you've got, I don't know, 10 chapters, 10 hour book, make the, the numbers easy. Sure. And you've got one chapter where there is a lot of yelling and a lot of screaming and the overall, the overall RMS is higher, but then you master the whole thing together. Once you chop it up into chapters to upload, aren't you going to have possibly some chapters that are actually below spec while that one is to spec? Yeah. 
And so here's the other thing people don't understand. Um, and this is sort of where some of my more intensive audio engineering background comes into play is something called perceptual loudness. Now we talk about RMS in terms of the absolute loudness of something like the mathematical spec, but two say two things that are say that, you know, again, to make the numbers easy, um, say you have an RMS of negative 20 for two files. Mm -hmm. That does not mean they're going to sound the same loudness. It does not mean that if you play them next to each other, that they're going to sound the same. Got it. And a lot of people don't understand that. Um, and what the reason why is that we don't hear all frequencies. We don't have the ability to hear all frequencies in the same uh, at the same level. So there are some how loud something is mathematically, like the amplitude or the power, is different than how loud something sounds to us or seems to us. Got it. So. There are certain frequencies that would create a higher RMS that would be louder. There are frequencies that our brain just doesn't hear as loud and, you know, vice versa. So you might have and, uh, you know, I guess they have loudness curves and stuff like that. You can look it up. Um, but typically sort of in the range of like 1K, 2K, 3K, we hear those frequencies really strongly. And then certain frequencies in the lower range or the very high range, but mostly the lower range, we don't hear quite as loud, but they might have higher power. So you might have something that say it's like an RMS of negative 18 um, and then something else that's an RMS of negative 20. But if that negative 18 one has a lot more low frequency, like a somebody with maybe a real baritone and the other one is somebody, maybe a woman who has kind of more of a mid range voice. Um, her file might sound louder than his. Got it. Makes sense. Even now. Yeah. So, so, it's, so you would absolutely yeah. recommend mastering everything at once. Just asking for a friend here. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I, I would definitely do. And then I would, um, yeah. And then I would do that. I would do the spot checking and what I'm going for is perceptual loudness. So in terms of the mathematical aspect of it, I shoot for kind of in the middle of the range. So if it's, you know, in the case of ACX, if it's negative 18 to negative 23, I might have an overall place that I'm shooting for of like negative 20. Mm -hmm. And then I tweak from there in terms of making sure it sounds the same loudness. And that doesn't mean that the actual numbers are going to be the same, but right. they'll all be within the spec. Right. So that's sort of, you know, and that's why I feel mastering is a bit more complicated than just running a batch of files through the same sort of normalization process. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I'll, um, I'll pass that on to my friend. <laughs> so someone's decided that they want to get an editor, but they're not really sure yet. And budget is a big deal. Uh, I'm pretty sure that the way that you feel about it is that it's always a smart move, but I think you also know that there are constraints. So what do you recommend to people when you're talking about hiring an editor and they've got budget concerns and stuff like that? I mean, yeah, I mean, look, we all live in the world, you know, <laughs> we know that it's not, you know, we don't, we're not always in an ideal situation. Like there are going to be times where, you know, something is a better way to go, you know, quality wise, but it's just not, you know, on the table right now for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to offer different services all a cart. Like for instance, um, because I know it's the most technically involved um, and the one that people are least likely to be able to do effectively on their own if they don't have an audio background, I'll offer mastering only. Um, and 
that's, you know, about a third of the cost of the full post that I offer. And people do that for varying reasons and in varying ways. I have some people who I will actually, they'll just do their record and then they'll send to me and I'll master it and then they'll edit it. And oh. with the idea, yeah, with the idea being that, you know, the mastering gets rid of a lot of things that they would edit, you know, particularly the different denoising techniques that I would use um, and certain uh, kinds of, yeah, an expansion and that kind of thing. And it allows, it cuts down their editing time so they still benefit, you know, from that. And they also get to listen to what the final uh, product would sound like. And usually, you know, and if they do get punches back from the rights holder, they can send me the file and I can master it the same way I mastered the book. And then they can do the editing of those back in and it's not perfect, but you know, it's, it's sort of a, a compromise and sure. It gets, oftentimes, you, gets you the mastered yeah. product with somebody who has more experience doing that, uh, but doesn't break the bank. Yeah. I mean, and there are, you know, that's why I'll, I tend to work people work with people with that stuff because I know, you know, that budgets are tough and, to be honest, a lot of those people later, you know, after they have some more work under their belt, they usually come back for the full package because at that point they're like, I don't have time to be. Right. Once you, get, once you get to the point yeah. where all you have time for is narrating, that's awesome. And then you have to farm out everything else. Yeah. And it's hard to know when you're at that point. And like, so I know that a lot of the time in forums all come out strongly for outsourcing. And I realized that, look, as somebody that people outsource to, clearly anyone's going to take what I say about that with a grain of salt, because of course I'm going to say that you should give it to a professional, you know? Yeah. But you've um, also got the credentials so that people think that, or people understand that, uh, you're coming at it with a, an informed opinion. Yeah. You know, and I've, I've worked in a lot, you know, like we were talking about earlier, I've worked in a lot of capacities in this business. So I've been in situations where I've been overseeing different parts of the process. I've, I've outsourced myself to proofers in varying situations where, for instance, there are things that, um, I produce, um, you know, rather, you know, there's, for instance, a podcasting company that I cast and produce all their audio. Um, so I don't tend to typically edit all of that myself. And sometimes I, I use proofers myself. Mm -hmm. So I'm familiar with, you know, that process. And that's a, it's another time where I'll typically all master before I send to the proofer because I don't want them to be noting things that I know are just going to be fixed, you know, right. in the master. Um, and I want at least somebody to be listening down to the final product, you know? Yeah. Um, cause I think that that's super important, but I think that a lot of times, you know, people have a hard time thinking as a business, mm -hmm. you know, and we're, none of us are immune to that. Like an, an example I sometimes use is that, you know, in, in New York city, this is a big thing because nobody really has a washer or dryer. Um, my husband for years was trying to get me to send our laundry out. And I was like, why, you know, I'm not going to do that. Why am I going to pay somebody else? to do something that I can just do myself. Like I'm not rich. I'm not made of money, mm -hmm. you know? And then finally a good while after I went freelance, I did the math and I realized the amount of time I spend doing this laundry, what, you know, what I pay to have somebody else do it is less than what I w would make hourly doing my work, which I can do because I now no longer have to do laundry. Right. Yeah. It's always and a cost, cost benefit analysis. Yeah. And it's really easy to, and I went, oh, okay, well now of course I'm going to do that. Yeah. That's very <laughs> you know? cool. But if all you're looking at is the number, you're like, that's crazy. I could do this for free, you know, right. but 
and it's hard to know when you're at that point. I think most people are at that point for a while, kind of treading water before it finally hits them. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And that's, yeah. And that's why I usually in the forums, I'll kind of push people because I think a lot of people are at that point. They just don't realize it. And they don't realize that once they kind of start doing that, they'll actually make more money. And because that's what I found, you know, for various different things. And that's just sort of like business person kind of thinking, which we're all sort of artistic types, right? So we don't. Not, not in the forefront. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. No, that makes a lot of sense. Well, this is great, Amanda. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on and uh, joining me in the speakeasy. I hope the tea was good. I know that my yeah. tea was good. So, absolutely. Uh, three cheers to the bar. Uh, where can people find you if they want to uh, look into hiring you to be an editor for their next audiobook adventure? Well, I'm on Facebook all the time, and so it's just <laughs> Amanda Rose Smith. If you search that, you'll see me with headphones on, and you'll know it's me. I have seen um, that a few times. <laughs> I'm on Twitter at, at Lady Soundsmith. Um, I have a website at amandarosesmith.com and my email is amandarosesmith at gmail.com. Cool. That's, that's great. Thank you so much for, uh, for being here. This has been a great talk. It has been fun. Thanks for having me. Sure. My pleasure. Uh, I, I look forward to talking to more people in the audiobook industry and, uh, and hearing more, but this was, this was great. First engineering, uh, first engineering guest in the speakeasy. Nice. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot, Amanda. Thank you. Well, that's it from the Speakeasy tonight. Many thanks to Amanda Rose Smith for stopping by, and I hope you'll be able to join me next week when I'll be sharing a drink with pre-production and casting director at Dion Audio, Philip Miller. You can find the audiobook Speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com, where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, a place where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter, and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook Speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. As of right now, I don't have any sponsors for the podcast, and I don't have any plans to go out looking for any. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you could visit patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy and donate a buck or two. Until we see you here at the Speakeasy again, I hope you can enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers!